Welcome to Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. Grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Paul Terry. Paul, I'd like to start, uh, ask you a few questions about your your origin. Where did you grow up? Talk to me a little bit about what that was like. So uh, I grew up in Cork in so- the south of Ireland. Um, I would say a fairly unremarkable upbringing, middle class family. My father worked for 49 years in the same company, which was more, more a thing back then than it is today. Um, he sold paint believe it or not, to retailers throughout West Cork and Kerry. That was his patch, and he would be on the road to retailers all over the region. My mother was a, uh, a lecturer in physics in my local university, University College Cork, also my alma mater. And uh, we lived a, a very unremarkable life, I would say, uh, just very much run the mill, nothing, nothing bad, nothing great, just very ordinary. I would have said as a... As a child, I would have been fairly retiring, let's say. And it was only when I went to university, actually, that I think I kind of found my own voice, found my own path, so to speak, and, and kind of flourished from in, in that environment very much so. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about that, about what was what it was. But before I do, just curiosity is killing me. When did you lose the Cork accent? I, had you, I did not have you pegged as somebody from Cork at all, and I usually have a good ear. Well, a lot of your listeners would probably say the Cork accent screams at them. Uh, it, it really, it, it's funny. Some people pick it up a mile away, and some people, like you, express surprise. So I mm. was, uh, I lived and worked internationally for 20 years. Uh, I now live and work in Dublin, <laughs> but still in a very international environment. <laughs> and uh, over the years, I think it had to, it just had to flatten. It was flatten yeah. or die from a, from a social perspective. <laughs> Nobody would yeah, understand yeah. it. Yeah. No, I understand that because I had the exact same. I'm from Kilkenny and uh, people don't peg it from Kilkenny. They know it's Irish, but they don't know exactly where from in Ireland. I think you're in the same boat. Yeah. And it's from that same experience as working abroad, working in an international environment is we tend to kind of shave the edges off the accent to to communicate. So it's a good thing, I guess. It's We have a desire to communicate. But um, th- what I'm also really intrigued by what you said is you were kind of a retiring type is introverted. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and that you came out of yourself in university. What was it? What was the, the turning point there for you? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, I went to an all-boys school and so suddenly... You know, there were girls at university and that was a very pleasant change. Um, and Whoa. I think my, my social circles broadened. Um, Whoa. The real, I think, pivot point for me was uh, I joined a, a sports club, a canoe club, um, and I developed a, a strong passion for whitewater kayaking and indeed all things kind of adventure, adrenaline, sports. But beyond that, I, I began to enjoy the organizing of the club. And, and depending on where your listeners are, it's a sports club mixed with a fraternity slash sorority type vibe. So I ended up becoming part of the organizing group. I ended up being the captain of that organization. And I really enjoyed 
bringing people together around a common passion and and getting them to do stuff together and, and standing up in the front in front of a a role of of fresh fresh uni university students oh. freshmen or fresh freshers and you know encouraging them to come and join and and so I very much found my voice I found I loved having a microphone yeah. in my hand <laughs> uh, and tried to encourage people to do something so that was where I really changed a little changed a lot actually. There's a, there's a question that's just popped into my head, and then I'm just trying to think it. I don't know that it's controversial, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is that from what you're saying, I, and, and I can imagine it, that university, particularly when you come from an all boys school uh, in, in, in Ireland, and then you go to university, which has a much more diverse population, even if back then it was far less diverse than it is today, it's still you're meeting new people, different interests, different thought processes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that can be a catalyst. Given that our society is more that way now, where we can express ourselves in a much more diverse way at an earlier age, does it make third level college some, and, and combined with the fact that we have all the knowledge we want in our pocket, does it make third level colleges somewhat redundant? I don't think so. I don't think so because, um, you know, what I, I tell my kids, they're 16 and 17 now, that I, I don't care what they study. There are very few things that you study at a university in order to bring it into, you know, your professional life. Obviously, mm. if you're going to be a heart surgeon, it would be really good if you studied medicine. Uh, same with veterinary dentistry, yeah. engineering, the people building our buildings. I want to know that they, you know, they understand the load bearing yeah. qualities of concrete. Uh, but for the rest of us, it's 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 getting an education, it's broadening those horizons. And I, what I would say is maybe the more tra the traditional path to university, I think, is maybe not as uh, as as old, as as, ex as exciting as 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 the current version. The current version is people are going all over, certainly Europe yeah. and potentially the yeah. world, to go to university. A uh, very few people in my peer group would have left Ireland to go to study. Uh, quite a few left Cork, and already that was considered to be a big deal. Uh, but you know, my kids are looking at universities in in different parts of Europe. Uh, I have a yeah. lot of friends today whose kids are studying all over Europe, and that doesn't seem to be anything strange. And that's a fabulous way to broaden those horizons oh. and give people a taste so, of something else. Yeah, yeah. Even the Erasmus, my own daughter is just back from spending nine months in Malta. So yeah, and and then being exposed to quite an international. Uh, group of students in Malta and itself. So yeah, not good point on that. I'd consider that one. Um, what would I need needed need to know about you as a young child to understand the person, the leader you are today? <laughs> what would you need? Uh, so you would need to know that somehow my parents, both Irish born and bred, um instilled in me and in my three siblings an incredible uh, an incredible a burning thirst to understand other cultures and a, and a fascination with other cultures and other ways of doing things and and other languages um and at one point all four of us lived outside of Ireland so four children and we were all living abroad and I remember at my wedding to a Dutch woman, um, my mother lamenting the fact, she said, you know what, we, we taught you too well. 
because you've all left the country. Uh, now, yeah. since then, two of us have returned, but uh, two are still living abroad. So that's what you would need to know about me as a young child. We were there were there were international people, foreign people traipsing through our house, sleeping on couches and floors uh, at any time of the year. And it, it exposed me to just a much bigger world out there. Oh. And that has really shaped who I am today. That's interesting. Yeah. The, OK. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, so when you, I'm, what I'm also curious about is the from college to sales, how you ended up in sales. What was it that attracted you to that? Because I presume you didn't study sales in college. You presume correctly. Uh, I studied economics and Italian, in fact. Oh. Um, so my, 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 my ambition as a, as a teenager, once I grew out of wanting to be a soldier as a child, the next thing I wanted to be was in international marketing. And I had no idea yeah. what that actually meant. Yeah. And thank goodness I didn't go into marketing because I'm not, I don't have a marketeer's mindset. But essentially what I, what I realized now, what I meant was international business. And this was feeding Ooh. that curiosity for international cultures and whatnot. And so the first job uh, I got was, uh, was a, for a very small Belgian advertising agency that moved you around the world to do different projects at different times. So you'd be parachuted in, you'd do a, a project for a couple of months in a country, and then you'd be picked up and moved on again. And that was a sales job. And, mm. you know, I, I, did, I, did I know it was a sales job? Yes, I did. Had I decided that sales was going to be my path? No, I had not. I was in my early to mid-20s. Uh, this was a ticket to see the world, and I needed a sell to do it, and that was fine by me. And I've just, yeah. I, I developed a, a very strong interest in both the art and the science of sales, and I've stayed with it ever since. Wow, the, what a wonderful opportunity to do that. What did you learn about yourself in living abroad in, in, in all of those different roles and moving around and all of the challenges you're going to have to overcome in terms of interacting with the world? I, I learned that I was incredibly adaptive. Um, so oh. the first gig, the first job that I was posted to was in Bucharest, Romania in 1997. And uh, I took a flight from Cork to Bucharest via London. And I met uh, one of my colleagues in the airport in London and we, we met, we shook hands, we carried on, we flew on to Bucharest. And it turned out that for the duration of the, that project and subsequent projects, which actually was it was back to back, it was one year, he and I were going to be sharing a hotel room uh, because that was how we saved costs as a business. It was the decision, that was our policy as a company. Ugh. So, you know, I met him in the morning on a Monday and I ended up sharing a room with him for the next year. Uh, and we're still very close friends, in fact. Uh, he's back in the US now. But, you know, you learn a lot about somebody else when you're Ugh. working 10, 14 hours a day with them, sharing a room with them. They're the only person you know in that city starting out, right? So they are your Ugh. social life as well. And it's, it's a very intensive relationship. And to make it work, you need to be adaptable. Mm. Um, and luckily, he was and I was. And then the subsequent year or the following year, I got paired up with a different person who, to my good fortune, was female. So I got my own hotel room <laughs> because they didn't, you didn't have to share rooms <laughs> if you were different genders. So uh, <laughs> that was a huge luxury for me. You know? Yeah. Yeah. God says you. That's, yeah. Private room. Yeah. Um, what, a, what a treat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so 
you said they were sales roles, but I got the sense from what you said they weren't overtly sales roles. That you is were correct. selling yourself, but it wasn't, you weren't carrying a bag, for example. Well, you were carrying a bag, but what it was, well, we, we, yeah. we, we, if you ever open different newspapers around the world, every now and then you'll come across a supplement in there. It's essentially an advertorial. And mm. uh, these advertorials are constructed in the following way. A team is dropped into a country. They interview political and business leaders uh, for this supplement. And, and the, the focus of the supplement is international investment coming to that country. Where are the investment opportunities? Where are the business opportunities and so on? And you're interviewing these business leaders for the articles of themselves, but then you're also selling them uh, con uh, sponsorship opportunities. You're selling right. them ad space in the supplement. Ooh. And what, you know, what, what's behind that is actually, it's an ad agency you work for. They buy the space in the New York Times at a you know, discounted rate. And then they, they fill that space both with editorial content, but also with ad space. And the ad space then is at a, you know, a multiplier of cost in order to cover the fact that you're not selling the editorial space. So you go and you do the interview, but then you, you close it out by selling the ad space as well. So you're very yeah. much carrying a bag. Um, it wasn't, these weren't days of targets. There was no quarterly numbers. It was sell as yeah. much as you can. <laughs> Make make the business as, as as much revenue as you can and then move on to the next yeah. project and do it again. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So talk to me then about when your leadership journey started and what was that like for you? What sort of speed bonus were you hitting for yourself that you needed to adjust to? Well, my leadership journey, I would say, started before it started in the sense that on this tour of the world, and, and I got to work in places all over, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Southeast Asia, Latin America. We interviewed only the CEOs of these companies because it was a it was a one and done sale. Essentially, you did the interview, you did the sale, and you moved on. And the only person who couldn't say, mm, "I need to check with my boss," is the CEO of the company, right? Ooh. So. We made a very strong play. We would, we would, we would meet only with the CEOs, and I mean, of very, very large corporations and brands that you would recognize from all over the world. And with those, let's say that was a sixty-minute meeting. The first forty-five minutes were an interview. You know, tell us about your company. Tell us about you. You know, and I got to see up close and personal the full spectrum of leaders. I was in my mid twenties. I wasn't a leader myself, but I was able to, you know, sit up really close and observe. And you had leaders who, you know, if they were to be believed, you know, the full source of their success was all down to them. And, you know, in spite of all the trials and tribulations, they were the ones who made it all happen. And Boom. then you would, at the other end of the spectrum, you had other leaders who were painfully modest um, to the Boom. degree of, you know, the word I would never enter the sentence unless it was to confess to doing something wrong. Or whatever it was Boom. success, they were... They were um, they were uh, reflecting that success back onto those around them, and phrases like "I always hire people smarter than me" were common among that cadre. And as I observed it, uh, you know, it's not that I was smart enough to be saying, "Okay, I want to make notes on this," but I absorbed those different leadership styles over the over the years, and I I had a very strong opinion about which type I wanted to be. So that's that's where uh -huh. it started. Let's say. Um, but then it, my first leadership role, uh, I was based in Amsterdam working for a company called Forrester Research. 
and I took on the Southern European markets for Forrester, which were a mixture of channel partners and direct salespeople. Very, very small team. It was probably like four or five people at the time. Ooh. And that's where I got my, my start, shall we say. And at that point, I think I was 20, 27 maybe. So, you know, in today's Ooh. environment, that would be a pretty early start in leadership. Um, back then, yeah, there were no, there was no structure. There were no rules and regulations. If they needed somebody in seat and they kind of thought that this guy wouldn't completely mess it up, let's try this guy and see if it works. I, I, I kind of graduated into it from a sales role. Really interesting. You said all of these CEOs you met and they seem to be on, you know, anywhere along the humility spectrum from one end to the other. Did you notice, first of all, any differences in terms of outcomes, results from their position? Was there a type that did better? And, and, I'm, and I'm leaving better wide open. It could be financially, it could be in terms of the organization's values, et cetera, et cetera. And then you also said you, you, had, you knew exactly where you wanted to be on that. Was it something you saw or was it just, it was just expressing who you were anyway and you just naturally gravitated to who you already were? Yeah, so I, I I didn't discern a difference. They were all successful. These were all, you know, significant companies in their countries. Some of them internationals of the local branch of, a, of an international business and some most of them homegrown. Um, but certainly I gravitated more towards those who, who would, you know, who would go and get you the coffee themselves. Oh. You know, they would walk you to the elevator. They would look you in the eye, shade your hand. There was no pomp and ceremony about them. Those that displayed the greater levels of humility. I, I, I think it was one with which I read, with which I, uh, resonated most for sure. Uh, uh, so I think uh, it did kind of just lead me in the direction that I would have naturely taken. Uh, that's a wonderful opportunity to get because you're absorbing, as you said, a lot of that, those lessons. I'm curious to know if there was a anything particular that stands out where there was an obvious lesson that something that you got from that experience that is evident in how you lead today, other than the humility side of things, but something more tangible. Yeah, so um, so a very, very tangible one, um, and a, a tactical, I would say, well, is, and I can't remember, did I, I, did I observe this or did they just tell me about it? But when you when you, you you certainly see it today in leadership rule books, let's say, you gather your team around you. You've got a topic for a discussion. You've got an opinion, but you should be the last one in the room to share that opinion, right? Because mm -hmm. if you if you, you know, you're in a room, you've got your direct reports around you, and you say, okay, this is what we're discussing today. Where I stand on this is X. Well, it's going to be very little surprise that everybody else is standing up close to or right on X along with you. Um, yeah. And you need to remain silent early on and let the others share their opinions in an un uninfluenced manner. And it's a guaranteed better outcome. That's interesting because I would imagine those on the, let's say the one end of that humility spectrum who see themselves as the center of everything, that I, I could imagine them starting first which would mean that they need to be have, they also need to have a skill set in being right most of the time. Otherwise, they're going to be in severe trouble. Yeah, which is a, an interesting thing in itself. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. I wanted to. I wanted to ask you in terms of 
people you've met along the way, who, who's inspired you, either in a personal life or your work life, but people you looked to and said, that person, not just I've learned the tactical things, but they give me a, a huge sense of inspiration and motivation. So there's a few, and, I, and I'm going to... I, I'm looking at this right now through a, a kind of a, a professional lens. And as soon as this call is over, I'll probably think, ah, oh, there was somebody in my non-professional world that I should have, I should have thought about. Yeah. Um, so when I started out relatively early in my, in my second job in my career, I was with this company called Forrester. I was based in Amsterdam. And the managing director of that company, uh, her name is Emily Nagel Green. Uh, she was the managing director of EMEA at the time. And... It wasn't uncommon when hosting a town hall, a company all hands or whatever, that she would cry. And she would cry with emotion. And she was somebody that today, then and today, if she called, I would take off my shoes and socks. I'll walk across broken glass without even asking why, if that was her request of me. And the way she wore her heart on her sleeve, the way she was not afraid to be absolutely who she was in a professional setting, um, inspired me. And, and also, you mm. know, one of those, I took a little bit of that. I was like, don't be afraid to show who you are. And and she was amazing. She is amazing. Um, oh, curious. Yeah. Just, be, just before you go on to the next one, I'm just curious on that one is in what, what was she crying about? What was it? What was the trigger? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I just so I think on one occasion we we I think on one occasion we had a riff a reduction in force, and okay. you know she was gathering those of us who were remaining and she was sharing the news and and it had impacted her, you know, okay. and it, it had upset her. Um, there were other occasions, um, and I think it wasn't always for bad reasons, you know. I think also Ugh. some just a passion. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what came forth, uh, you know, around things that we were doing as a business and, and uh, the goals that we had, our purpose. Um, mm. And it just, I don't want to make it sound she cried every time she stood up. She didn't. It was very rare. Yeah. But when she did, it was it was really meaningful. And it meant a lot to yeah. me as well. And, and to those. Well, that, that, that's interesting. And I can understand why that would move somebody for sure. And that's what I was curious about was so you know people can cry for many different reasons, um, and some of those I can imagine you can connect with easier because you're feeling the same emotions and just maybe they're expressing them more authentically than you know typically and particularly as a man you probably tend to bottle them up a bit more, yeah. Um, which is why I was which was I was curious about that one. Sorry, you were going to go on to somebody else before I. Well, she also you. actually before I move on, she also taught me. Something one particular thing which I use very tactically as well today. She was a tremendous public speaker, um, and I aspire always to be a better public speaker than I am. And she taught, uh, she taught me. She held a master class one day, like a one hour lunch and learn Ooh. thing. And she said, "There's the three P's of presentations of our public speaking. The first one is prepare. Everybody prepares, right? You prepare your slides. You know, you don't go into the." on stage without your slides. The second one is practice. Yeah, pretty much everybody, mm. you know, they run through their slides a couple of times, they practice, they kind of know what's there. We said the third one that very few people pay attention to but makes all the difference is polish. And a mm. polished presentation 
or speech is when you're so comfortable, you've run through it so many times, and I'm talking like 25, 30, 40 times, not two, three, four times, that you're so comfortable with what you're going to say, you can really have fun with how you say it. Yes, 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 And yes, that yes. makes all the difference. And I try, yeah. to, I try to bring that into my own public speaking engagements as well. Yeah, because that's the one thing you can't do unless you do it out loud. You yeah. can't polish something unless you're doing it. That's where I think people stop because they think, they, in my experience anyway, they think that because they have it in their head, they know it. Yeah. And it's not the same. That's an interesting one. I like that one. I hadn't, haven't come across the polish element of that before. And, and I do you know what's the, great? You know, a great ad, uh, a technological uh, addition for that is these bad boys here, right? AirPods. Yeah. So I often walk, you know, to, to, to the public transport or to wherever I'm walking to. I put in my AirPods so people think I'm on the phone <laughs> because I'm talking the presentation. Uh, um, uh, that's brilliant. And that, I don't want that, them thinking there's some mad guy walking around the neighborhood talking to himself. That's brilliant. I never would have thought of that. There that's you funny. Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the diversion. Because, I, uh, yeah, that's genius, that is. that. Yeah, I'll give you attribution, but I'm going to pass that on because Please that is them. a genius, By genius tactic. It makes all the yeah. difference. Make, then, you know, yeah, yeah. Maybe I worry too much about what my neighbors think of me, but I don't want them calling me, you know, the medical services that there's a... No, no, it makes perfect sense. And also you're just, you're you're less self-conscious. And if you're less self-conscious, you can polish, you can focus on the delivery and not worry about who's looking at you or why they're looking at you or what they're nudging their partner saying, look at your man. Exactly. Very, very good. I love that. Nice. Um, <laughs> The other person um, who has inspired me, and it, again, it's in it's in almost mundane terms, but I've learned so much, is a guy by the name of Liam Halpin, who was my boss ah. for many years at, uh, at LinkedIn. Ooh. And Liam taught me a couple of things. One, he taught me, you know, I should, I should put like a half second delay between what I think and what I say, because sometimes I blurt stuff out and, you know, with the best of intentions, but Ooh. it could come across the wrong way. Uh, but he also taught me to look at things. I, I get very enthusiastic. Somebody comes with an idea and I go, oh, brilliant, yeah, let's do it. But he's taught me to build in that delay to think about the unintended mm. consequences. Well, you know, yeah. if we do that over here, this is going to happen over there. Are we okay with that? And and mm. it's made me a much more, I think, a much more balanced leader mm. as a result. Um, it keeps me within a certain set of parameters in terms of how quickly I spin out on crazy ideas. And it's been a huge inspiration for me and it's definitely made me better at what I do. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm seeing more and more, and this is a, a somewhat of a segue as well, more and more use cases for ChatGPT in particular where people are putting in ideas and, and they're asking it to evaluate it and look for blind spots in it, which I think is another good, wow. you know, if, you, if you're on your own and you don't have people to noodle something out with that you can do that. And so in, in terms of AI, I'm, I'm curious to know what your own thoughts are on it in terms of the threats and opportunities from a business perspective. So I think I, actually that's a great example of where it's a huge advantage right it's a sounding board um i i you know you you've probably heard the word co-pilot being used um in this context more frequently um when i think about my business uh i typically 
triangulate in, or I try to triangulate in. So I, I think of something from three different perspectives. And a, you know, a business forecast is a very easy example. You know, I'll take the perspective of what my my direct reports of my managers are telling me. I take the perspective of what I think the business can do, and I take the perspective of what did we do this time last year, right? And as I think the money changed. And the right answer is probably somewhere in between those three points. So I triangulate in and then I land on what my forecast should be. And that also goes with business strategy as well. So ChatGPT is a terrific other perspective on what should we do? What can we do? How should I talk to this client? Um, And I know that there are reps all over the world today using it for things like, you know, tell me about the top three challenges Mm -hmm. facing chief information officers in the pharmaceutical industry. Now, if you were dumb enough to print that off and walk into a, a CIO at a pharma company and say, these are your top three challenges, you know, you deserve to be kicked out of the, the yeah. building unceremoniously. Yeah. But it's a great starting point and it's another point of triangulation. Um, yeah. I think that's just a really basic way of using it. I think um, people are going to be using it to accelerate their engagement more quickly but and here's the here's the major but i do not fear that it's going to it's going to make redundant sales professionals i think it's going to give up give salespeople superpowers to be able to be more relevant um and more resonant more quickly but at the end of the day it's the relationship that's going to get you all the way to the end and so you are the yeah. right to have the conversation, but then you have to you have to continue yeah. to build that relationship thereafter. Yeah, yeah. And I think on that topic as well that I think it's going to polarize the ABC players in sales and shove them further apart because the A players are going to see it and go, "Prepare me for this meeting. Yeah. Uh, I want you to play the role of this type of a prospect, and I want you to ask me all the questions, the difficult, hard questions." And they're going to use it, and, and and I think that's going to develop their instincts and 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 condition them for greater success. I think the people who don't use it, who are not prepared, are going to. I, I think that's going to you're going to that's gap is going to widen. That's my own sense of it because it's like a coach with you whenever you want, wherever you want. I can prepare you, even as you were th- talking about triangulation. I saw a guy recently online, and he played the seven hats of leadership where he said, oh, I want you to play, you know, put the hat of creativity on. I want you to put the skeptic's hat on and play those. And of course, it understands what the seven hats mean. And it's able to give you different perspectives on a particular question or topic, wow. which I think is just mind-blowing. That is so and exciting. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, what we all need to do now is carve out the time to experiment with that and to see what, you know, how far this can go. But it can go incredibly far yeah. I would say well the interesting thing I think about it is for example we're all su- if you're in sales you're supposed to be doing pre-call planning do people do it consistently no but I think if because I think there's a sense of it's just form filling but if you can go on say and carve out the 20 minutes that you should be doing anyway and ask to prepare for you every time you're going to go oh yeah I never thought of that because it's going to add that extra value. It's not just preparing what you think. It's going to give you extra insight or, or an extra challenge. And I think then we can become, it's going to be, we're going to be hooked. We're going to need the co-pilot because there's a dependency on it. And, uh, and, and those that say, oh, you know, it's it's machine. It's not really the salesperson. 
I'm all, I don't agree with that because actually no. anything that gets you to delivering value to your customer quicker is a good thing. Yeah. Right. Uh, no, absolutely not. But I tell you, I don't know if you saw it. I, I, I did a role play with it last week. I asked it to create a scenario, a realistic role play. I asked it to play the role of a buyer and, and then evaluate my sales skills. And I, w I was so blown away with how realistic, how, how I felt, the way I felt challenged uh, to dig deep. Uh, I just cut and pasted and put it up on LinkedIn because I just thought this is so incredibly realistic. And so did you, um, I mean, I'm curious, did you type your, yeah, your, yeah. Your, and, 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 your conversation and then it typed back to you? Yes, it did. And, and now, so there's an, 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 there's an evolution in that that I'm working on at the moment. I've got a new plugin that allows me to speak it. It's still not going to be as challenging as a real life, but in terms of where do I go with this conversation, just getting me to think something through. If I've done that a couple of times in, let's say, slowed down version, then when I'm in real life, I, the, the grooves are there. I, you know, the, the channels have already been defined and I know where to go with it. I don't have to think about it because I've tested it out. So yeah. is it going to be like, like role-playing in real life? No, but I actually think this is better because it stops you blurting stuff out automatically and gets you to think in an environment where that's the right way to do it. That, that's my sense on it. Um, and it's only going to get better. It's only going to get realistic where it will be a voice eventually and it will be real time. Yeah. Uh, well, but yeah, I, I certainly felt challenged. There's no question with some of the responses that came back with, I thought, ooh, this is really good. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I could have got, like the one thing I didn't do, which I would probably do the next time is uh, I didn't ask it to play the role of, say, a dominant red type personality who's having a bad day. Or equally challenging is I want you to play the role of somebody who's pedantic and just wants to follow the process. Like, they're all challenging situations and right. it will do a tremendous job. And so I, I'm just, I'm excited and terrified in equal yeah. measure as to where this thing is going. It's so much potential. It's not funny. And I think we're only just scratching the surface. But uh, yeah, um, tell me, um, I, I, do you know what I was doing? I was looking down here because I wanted to ask you a question from the wheel. And the, I, I, I can't remember if I told you about the wheel. The wheel is I have 20 questions. And they're all getting to know you questions or used as sort of a, as, a, as a, if you've got a dinner party and you want your guests to get to know each other. I'm going to go to the to the wheel and, and get it to ask you a question. That's all right. So let's spin the wheel. And uh, what's it coming up with? There we go. What do other people tend not to understand about you? Oh, what do other people tend not to understand about me? Yeah. That I'm a, I, I, other people tend not to understand that I'm actually, I think I'm more introverted than I come than I look, than I, that I come across. So if I go into a, a room full of people that I don't know, I'm actually quite nervous. Um, and I, and I overcome those nerves by, you know, taking a breath and, launching myself in. So I'll be the first guy going out, sticking on my hand saying, hi, my name is Paul. What's your name? Um, and that's not, that's not a demonstration of my level of comfort. It's actually quite the opposite. It's my discomfort that I'm trying to overcome. That's interesting. Yeah. It's it's really good. Good See the hill, take the hill. 
Thanks. Yeah, 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 yeah. If if you were to write a book, what would the book be about? The book would be about some aspect of history because I'm a huge history buff. Um, I I I I consume history books all the time, although I didn't study it at uni, but um, it's it's very mm. much a hobby for me now. Um, and it would probably be something around military history, and it would probably be something around turning points. You know, when you know when 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 the guys went left, if if they had gone right, it all could have been so different. Uh, yeah, and how they got to that decision, <clears throat> something to that effect. Okay, now that begs the next question: Is if you could go to any period in history, and and experience that firsthand, what would it be? What? Um, I would have to say, I told you when I started out, when we started this call as a child, I wanted to be a soldier. I'm so glad I wasn't, right? And I'm so glad I've never had to think about that. And we see some awful uh, instances around the world, close and far from home, where, where people don't have that choice anymore. They're now in uniform and, they're, you know, in combat. But... I'm fascinated by what that does to a human in terms of in terms of their the challenges that they face. So I would say probably around about World War II that time, um, you know, ideally not a soldier, ideally a citizen, oh. but observing how that all played out, I think would be fascinating for me. I think that is interesting because I do think that the the trauma that comes that people take back from those situations, having seen your friends blown to pieces and and, and all sorts of awfulness. Yeah. And, you know, anybody who knows somebody who's been in war, they don't like to talk about it. They can't talk about it. They can't find the words to talk about it. And that, they, you know, psychologists do talk about intergenerational trauma, that that can then be passed on. And we often wonder then why men have such difficulty discussing our feelings. And I think a lot of it comes from that. Um, and, and stuff, stuff, you know, stuff, by you, no yeah. means am I. Do I have a romantic view on that anymore? You know. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. You know, my, no, I just saying if you were studying it, I think it's an interesting. Long in the past, uh, I'm yeah, realistic yeah. enough about that now. Yeah, yeah. No, I was fascinated by it because again, my father was 20 during World when World War II broke out, and he talked a lot about it. He's obviously based here, but he was in the the FCA as they called it at the time. They had a. <laughs> this is such an Irish thing. He had a rifle, an old Enfield rifle, and 20 rounds of ammunition at home. <laughs> in Fenton community. And actually, my, my father Which, was in the same organization. He was 18. And uh, yeah. in addition to what you've described, he also had a bicycle. And uh, the idea was, yeah. and this was in Cork City, firstly, there was a, an absolute assumption that that, that there was going to be an invasion in Ireland, right? So that they oh. all kind of believed that to be the case. And these guys in Cork, the idea was Kinsale was going to be the most likely landing point in that part of the mm. country. And they were expected, they were going to jump on their bikes and cycle <laughs> to Kinsale <laughs> with their rifle at 20 rounds. And they were going to uh, hold the, the, the invaders off until such time as when the, the regular army arrived, which was basically five guys in a car. And they would yeah. come down and they would take over. So that was the plan. Yeah. Mm. Pretty thankfully, it was never stuff. tested. Yeah, thankfully. 
Tabby, listen, we're, we're running out of time, Paul, so I have three quick questions I want to ask you. Uh, desert Island, you're going to be marooned on a desert island. You don't know whether you're ever going to be rescued. What one thing, not a person, what one thing would you take with you? I would say my bicycle. Okay. Uh, it's yeah. uh, having spent most of my adult life in Amsterdam. I've come to rely very heavily on bicycles. And I, and I don't mean, by the way, yeah. you know, Lycra and racing. I mean a bike for getting to and from the shops, to and from yeah. work, or in this case, around the island. It, short, it, say, it yeah, shrinks really. your environment, right? It takes yeah. a, a fifth, what could be a you know an hour-long walk and it becomes a 10-minute bike ride. So our twenty minute yeah. bike ride, and then suddenly your your addressable space is so much larger. Okay. Second question: Your house is burning down, and your family are safe. If you have any pets, they're safe. Your phone and computer are safe. If you had time to rush back in and grab one thing, what would it be? You asked some great questions. So family's safe. The dog is safe. Mm-hmm. Actually, it would be it would be these. So my wife and I don't have a lot of great ideas, but when we do, they're doozies. So these are okay. journals, each one for each of our children. Oh, Quentin and Elisa. And from the day they were born, we, we every now and then we write notes about what's going on in that that part that kid's life at that time. And you know they're sixteen and seventeen, and we're you know we're only we're not even we're like we're probably like fifty pages in. But uh, so it, it could be a couple of months, it could be a year or two before we write something. But then we'll take the time, mm. we'll sit down, and we'll we'll say, you know, this happened. You you're, you're twelve today, and you know, this is what oh, your personality is idea. like, and this is your best friend. And the mm. idea is that at some point, you know, that they'll have them themselves, Brilliant. and over the years they yeah. can look back. And I just think it's a it's a lovely way of it really is of maintaining a, an in the moment view on something, mm. you know. No, so absolutely. Is, hard you forget so much. No backup. Hmm? Yeah, you forget so much. You forget so much. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, also, yeah. when I read it back now, I go, "Wow, that was actually a really good time." It felt really Oof. busy and stressed. And yeah, well, why didn't I slow down and just enjoy it more? You know, that's such a really profound point. You're absolutely right. We we tend to rush through the moment, and then afterwards realize, "Well, what was? Why was I rushing?" Yeah. Uh, final final question is when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? The title of the book? And you are. You are. You're a tough one. The title of the book, um, Paul Terry, he cared, and that made all the difference. Nice. I like it. Yep. Very good. Paul Terry, thank you so much for being my guest on the podcast today. It's been an absolute joy. Paul Lanigan, thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it, so thank you.